go ahead and take a seat. That was good. That was a... Uh, a lot of words that come to mind there's something there's something fun there's something beautiful there's something healing holistic redeeming and restoring I think about the church just doing that and maybe even as as Nate stopped instruments and we just heard the voices there's something even more special I was uh I was in Portland all this last week until last night for some classes and I'm a part of this cohort of about 12 people that, that are doing some theological studies, and it's been really fun to get to know these people all over the country, leading in different capacities, serving in different capacities, but for, for some reason, I guess it's, it's my third round with them, uh, there, was, there was a shift. It felt like a church actually being there with them um, because I've, I've heard their stories. I've experienced brokenness with them. We've shared in different things and celebrations, and there's something good about that, and, and the good in it is this, it's that Jesus Christ is our living hope. And the, the key word there is living, that, that he is with you. He was with my, my friends in Portland, but there's something special as I, I come back. I know I was here last week, but just to, to stop and reflect, like Jesus Christ is your living hope. He's not a distant hope. He's not a hope from the past. He is living and with us in each of you. And everything you do, not just the spiritual, not just when we gather, that voice, that there's beauty in the collective voice that you just heard singing praises about our living hope, but that living hope goes with you. So know that. Now, I hope and I, I pray that this morning you'd be overwhelmed by God's love. Not that you just experience it or know it, but that you would be overwhelmed, that you would be covered with God's love because that's what he wants. He's with you. He's living. He's good. And that's my sermon for this morning because I'm not teaching. So, um, A couple announcements before we do get to our teaching. And first, Kate, you can turn to uh, Psalm 73 if you want to know where we will be. Psalm 73, all of it, all the verses. Uh, a couple announcements prior to that. We will be having a welcome lunch uh, on February 9th after the second gathering. I'm not going to tell you how to RSVP or anything. I just want to put it in your ear real quick so you can think about it. If you're new around here, you have questions, you want to know what we're about, or you want to kind of take that next step into connection and being a part of this church, February 9th, we'll have a lunch here. Uh, would love for you to, to join us if, if you're available. So just keep that in mind. Also, uh, February, or excuse me, January 26th, so not this Sunday or next, but the following will be the three-year birthday for the church, which is really wild to consider that we planted this church three years ago. Um, and, and it'll also be the day, it will be the day that we present elders before you. And so we've had a management team in place and they're going to transition off. They'll still be involved, but they'll no longer have the authority and oversight and local elders will. And that's another gift. Uh, getting to know these men has truly been a gift to me as I think about the, the body of Christ, the church, seeing the, the gifts, the different, the passions, uniqueness, the way that God has made each one in his own image, but with different things to offer is really good. And so I'm excited for, for you to get to know them, for us to be partnering together. And so we're going to celebrate all of that really well. I think a lost art 
uh, within Christianity, within the church, that's really significant is we've lost the art of celebration. We need to celebrate people better and milestones and things God has done. And so we're going to celebrate, hopefully well, on uh, the 26th. Stick around after the first service. We'll have carne asada, a bunch of food, balloons, toys, bounce houses, all kinds of things for kids. And the idea is we just want to spend time together. Something significant happens relationally, which then leads to our mission as we share meals, as we sit and talk and just be the church with each other. So remember that. You don't want to miss uh, January 26th. With that said, uh, this morning, uh, Dr. Ed Bloom will be joining us. He's been a part of our church for uh, about two years, give or take. Um, Ed's personally just been an amazing blessing in my life through this this journey of, of Restoration Church. Uh, I've continued just to have my mind blown by God as he brings people. So many of you that are going, how did God just bring this type of person that that is such a gift to the church? And Ed is certainly one of those. He's the uh, was the general editor of the Holman Christian Standard Bible that we use every week. Um, he's a, a wealth of knowledge and wisdom, but but it goes beyond that. Like his wisdom theologically and, and through life and leadership is way out of my league. But he's been such a personal leader and friend uh, for me, and he's going to be a gift to you. So will you do me a favor and, and please welcome Ed Bloom to join us this morning? Thank you, Ed. You gonna pray? Yes, let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, I thank you for this people. God, your church is all over this world, your body that, that you are the head of and that you are leading. God, I thank you for this, this part of your church, Restoration Church here in, in Prescott as we gather this morning. We gather to honor you, to bring you glory. We gather because we need you. I thank you for the, the different people in here with different gifts like Ed, who's going to be uh, giving the, the gift of his teaching through your word. May that guide us. May it challenge us. May it overwhelm us with your love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll see how it goes. <clears throat> Sermon title is The Heart Determines. In order to understand that, uh, we're going to look at a psalm. And I'll remind you of a couple passages of the Bible that you probably run across. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And then Proverbs uh, chapter 4, uh, verse 23. Guard your heart. With all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. We probably don't think too much about the heart, except if we have had a heart attack or something like that. Uh, but we're going to talk about the theological heart, uh, not the anatomical heart. The theological heart uh, is mentioned... 853 times in the Old Testament and 156 times in the New Testament. It is uh, the place where you meet God in the heart. Those of you who've read the book of um, Exodus, you remember that Moses uh, kept talking to Pharaoh and Pharaoh kept hardening his heart. He wouldn't listen to God. 
So we're going to look at the psalm. <coughs> Jesus, uh, in Mark chapter 7, was talking to a group of disciples, and he was telling them, you don't have to worry about what you eat. It isn't the food that goes into your mouth that defiles you. So whether you eat pork or shrimp, uh, that doesn't make a big difference in uh, your theological cleanliness. <clears throat> so Jesus says, it's out of the heart that comes evil thoughts and so on. So <clears throat> when the Bible talks about the heart, uh, it's not talking uh, about your anatomical. It's talking about your theological center. We all have a theological center, and we're going to see a person who really struggled uh, in this particular passage. <clears throat> uh, we're going to uh, go to Psalm 73. Let me tell you a little bit about the background. The book of Psalms uh, is a collection of 150 psalms. Uh, these psalms are of different types. Uh, they, some of them are laments. And that's sort of surprising. If you read the book of Psalms, you find that oftentimes, in fact, 60 of the psalms of the 150 are laments. But being in a church that believes in broken stories, uh, you can see that uh, the broken stories uh, are what cause laments. In Israel, when you read Israel's history, you realize the history of Israel is a very sad history. Uh, <clears throat> uh, it starts out fairly good, but then the book of Judges, terrible. By the time you get a king, the first king turns out to be a disaster. The second king, pretty good. The third king, Solomon, How is it possible for the wisest of men to become the greatest of fools? He ends up leaving his Lord and ending up in a disaster. The kingdom is divided. The northern kingdom is taken off into captivity. The southern kingdom is eventually taken off into captivity. The history of the Old Testament is a history of disaster. So there is a lament. So of the Psalms, you'll find that there are different kinds of Psalms. Just like uh, if you had a hymn book uh, and you looked through the hymns, you'd find there are Christmas songs, there are Thanksgiving Psalms, uh, and so on. The book of Psalms is Hebrew poetry, a little different from our poetry, but we still have a lot of poetry in our world today. <clears throat> For example, there was a woman uh, who gave just recently, not so long ago, $200 million to the foundation, the Poetry Foundation, so that people would be more in tune with poetry. Uh, you probably don't realize this, but C.S. Lewis wanted to be a poet. He actually wrote five uh, volumes of poetry, but none of them really caught on. Uh, I still think uh, he's pretty good as a poet, but uh, 
another person you might be more familiar with than C.S. Lewis or T.S. Eliot, uh, you might be familiar with Bob Dylan. And you might remember that at a certain point in his theological career, uh, he wrote uh, a song called, You Gotta Serve Somebody. You either gotta serve God or the devil. Leonard didn't like the song and said, serve yourself. He wrote a song, you gotta serve yourself. Poetry is uh, a kind of um, literature that we should probably spend more time on. Uh, if you take this book and look at it carefully, you'll find that there are five books that are totally uh, given to poetry. Job, a long narrative poem. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Five books of poetry. And then if you read through the Bible carefully, you'll find that there are a lot of passages. Uh, for example, when Israel comes out of Egypt, the first thing that they do is they sing a song, a song of deliverance in Exodus chapter 15. And when you read through uh, the, the major poets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then the 12, all of them have poetic structure. So... The Bible is full of poetry, uh, and the first book that was ever published in the United States, if I ask you, what was the first book? Anybody know it? You might say the Bible, but it wasn't. <laughs> and, uh, close. It was the Bay Psalm book. It was a collection of 40 psalms in a metrical psalm because many of the Puritans who came here, by the way, they didn't come with the King James Bible. One of the reasons why they left England was because they hated the king. Uh, and so they, they had the Geneva Bible uh, written by good Calvinist in uh, Geneva, Switzerland. So the first thing they did when they got it over here uh, in, from 1620 to 1640, they built Harvard so they would have ministers who could teach the word of God. Unfortunately, Harvard uh, has sort of slipped, uh, like the psalm, uh, it, it slipped. But the first book that they wrote, that, that they had, was this psalm book. Because that's what they sang every Sunday were psalms. And it had 40 psalms. There's only about 11 copies left of this book. And uh, Old, South, South, Old South Church in Boston had two copies. They sold one uh, in uh, 2013, and it sold at auction for $14 million. The most expensive book ever uh, sold at auction. Uh, the reason why they sold it because they, they uh, had a building that needed renovation, so they sold it. So uh, we're going to look at this psalm. Uh, it is, uh, the book of Psalms is divided into five specific books. If you look at verse, uh, the last verse of Psalm 72, it says, the prayers of David, son of Jesse, are concluded. 
So that's the end of the second collection of books. We're in book three now, which is Psalms 73 to Psalm 89. Uh, and uh, in Psalm 73, we'll start off with the first section, uh, the first, the introduction. <coughs> God is indeed good to Israel, to the pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped, my steps nearly went astray. So the man who wrote this, if you look at the, the, the caption, his name is Asaph. Uh, he wrote 12 psalms, and he was a musician. Uh, he was one of the leaders of uh, David's choruses and praise of God. But obviously, he had a struggle in his own life. Because if you read the psalm through, and we're going to go through the whole psalm, this is his confession at the end. Indeed, God is good to Israel, to the pure in heart. The pure in heart. Jesus, remember, in his uh, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And you might remember that Peter, uh, in Acts chapter 15, uh, <clears throat> he says, God is the one who converts people. He knows the heart, and he sent his spirit into the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. So it's the faith in God and the faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that purifies our hearts. But this guy almost gave up the faith. So in a way, this particular psalm that we're going to study uh, may uh, apply to all of us. Some of us may at one time or another think about giving up the faith. Maybe you have. But there are other people who perhaps have never had a struggle and don't struggle, but you'll run across people who struggle and almost give up the faith. You remember the book of Hebrews in chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 4. The author of the book of Hebrews says, Be careful about drifting, the danger of drifting away from the Lord. So this man... Uh, he gives his confession. I would say, in a way, uh, this psalm, there's categories, lament psalms, messianic psalms, wisdom psalms, uh, praise psalms, thanksgiving psalms. This one is sort of unique. Uh, I would call it maybe an interior monologue, a confession. Augustine one of the greatest of the church fathers, wrote a book called The Confessions, which uh, talks about how uh, he went up and down and came to the Lord. This man says in the next section, section two, I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Some of you probably read the Wall Street Journal, and when you get to chapter, uh, when you get to uh, Friday and Saturday, there's a se separate section about uh, the mansion. It it it, it talks about uh, the houses that people have. This man, obviously uh, a believer, he envied the arrogant. He saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envy, coveting, greed. The Bible has a great deal to say about this. Uh, unfortunately, we live in a culture that has a tremendous amount of advertising. It's designed to make us want. And we might envy people who have more than we have. You know, you're driving along the highway in your old VW beetle and somebody runs runs by in their mercedes and you think why don't i have a mercedes so uh you remember the bible does say is one of the ten commandments thou shalt not covet but i suspect that this is a kind of sin envy greed wanting uh, that probably touches all of us. But this man particularly, he envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Then he, he goes, goes on, he says, I, the wicked people seem to have a pretty easy life. They have, uh, this is how he, he views things. It's hard for us to understand, well, how come a guy like Stalin dies at old age in his bed. Or Mao, who killed 32 million people in four years, yet he dies at old age in his bed. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well-fed. They're not in trouble like others. They're not afflicted like most people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Uh, and violence covers them like a garment. So they boast in their lifestyle. On the back of their uh, Porsche, it says, he who dies with the most toys wins. Or the young girl with her uh, BMW, it is all about me. The next section, their eyes bulge out from fatness. The imagination of their hearts run wild. See, the heart problem again. They mock. They speak maliciously. You remember Ted Turner? He says, Christianity is for losers. He, uh, he uh, later on repented about that, but that was his statement. They mock. They speak maliciously. They're arrogant. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against heaven and their tongues strut across the earth. God to them is irrelevant. Doesn't make any difference. It's just a name. Therefore, his people turn to them and drink in in their overflowing words. In other words, one of the problems that this guy faces is, is that not only uh, are the, the wicked, wealthy, powerful, 
influential, but even God's people uh, can be sucked in by them and follow them. The wicked say, how can God know? Does the Most High know anything or know everything? So this is how he sees life right now. Look at them, the wicked. They're always at ease. They increase their wealth. About four or five years ago, I uh, looked at uh, Forbes magazine, and it said that there were uh, a thousand billionaires in the world. I looked uh, at a report a couple days ago, and it says that there are 2,604 billionaires in the world. They constantly increase their wealth. We have 585 billionaires in America, and the wealthiest man, of course, in the world is Vizos. So that's how he sees life when he looks at it from a certain point of view. Then he looks at himself. And we move to the next section. Did I purify my heart and wash my hands in innocence for nothing? For I'm afflicted all day long and punished every morning. Book of Hebrews uh, tells us that we should be careful. Chapter 12, verse 5. Uh, the Lord punishes and chastens every son whom he receives. One wag says, if God treats his people, his friends, this way, it's no wonder he has so few. God's servants do suffer. You've got to remember that Jesus Christ was born in a stable and died on a cross without any clothes. He was the suffering servant. So this man now tries to understand what the world is like. He says in the next section, if I decided to say these things out loud, I would have betrayed your people. In other words, his great temptation was to tell other people that it doesn't make a lot of sense to be a good guy. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But he decided that it would be wrong to harm God's people. If I told other people what I'm really thinking, they might be themselves tempted to give up the faith. When I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless. The human mind, oftentimes with its rationalism, is not necessarily able to solve the problem. And so he says, until I entered God's sanctuary. Then I understood their destiny. We don't know what actually happened when he went into God's temple, whether the Lord gave him a special revelation, whether he heard the word of God, 
uh, or whether or not he, he had some kind of uh, revelation that was special. But he began to understand the, for things from a different perspective. Wesley used to say, our people die well. Eschatology is a great doctrine dealing with the way things turn out. The next section, indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors like one awaking from a dream. Lord, when arising, you will despise their image. In other words, the end of life is not the end. There is a judgment. There is uh, eternity. Then he confesses his own stupidity. <clears throat> when I became embittered, my innermost being, the heart and the kidneys in the Hebrew text, my innermost being was wounded. I was stupid and didn't understand. I was an unthinking animal toward you, like a cow, or as one translation has it, I was like a hippopotamus. In other words, uh, we can live our lives like animals, not really thinking, not really believing. But God did a work in his heart we are, verse 23, yet I am always with you. What's the greatest promise in the Bible? I, w I was trying to think of the promises in the Bible, and I, I've, I have come to the belief that, that besides salvation, uh, one of the great promises of the Bible is that God is with us. You remember a man named Jacob? He was running away from his brother who was going to kill him. Uh, and he had a revelation at Bethel. And God said, I'm going to be with you. Moses uh, was told by God to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, I can't talk. God says to him, I will be with you. Joshua was to take over when Moses died. And in Joshua chapter 1, God says, I will be with you. Then there's a guy named Gideon. Uh, everything is so bad in Israel. Uh, he is down in a pit, uh, threshing out stuff in a pit because the enemy is taking the food. And God says to him, I want you to go and deliberate Israel. He says, me? I'm from the smallest group, and I'm the youngest of the family. Go, the Lord says. I'll be with you. Jeremiah, God tells him, I want you to go and speak to people. 
Jeremiah says, me? God says, go, I will be with you. When I was reading that, I thought, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't it be wonderful to have that promise from God? And then I remembered Jesus saying in John 10, uh, 28, I give unto my sheep eternal, love, uh, eternal life, they shall never perish. And then I remembered also in the, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 5, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, we will say, the Lord is my helper. So we all have this promise that he will never leave us nor forsake us. You hold my right hand. If you go through the, uh, get yourself a concordance, you'll see a number of times God says he will take a person by the, his, their right hand. In other words, he holds on to us. Verse 26, you guide me with your counsel. God guides us with his counsel. He gives us his spirit, and the spirit reminds us and guides us of what the text says. And afterward, you will take me to glory. Many people who read the Old Testament think, well, there's no resurrection, no afterlife in the Old Testament. They're wrong. Uh, this phrase, you will take me up in glory, three times in the, the Old Testament, you have a very unusual statement. Enoch walked with God, and God took him. Elijah ministered in a difficult situation, uh, and then the text says, God took him. Uh, and there's an, also in, in Psalm 49, you will take me. And here he says, afterward, <clears throat> you will take me up in glory. God is at work in our lives. He's constantly guiding us, holding us, moving us, and ultimately he's taking us to glory. Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. This man who started it out almost giving up the faith he comes to a place in his spiritual life which is probably the high point in the Old Testament. Notice what he says. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. So Jesus says in Luke 12, 15, our life does not consist in any abundance of the things which we possess. This man has come to the place where he understands heaven has something, the Lord, and I desire nothing, no thing on earth but you. I guess the question for all of us would be, uh, what thing do we think is valuable on earth?
what are the things that we think is valuable here? This man. The highest spirituality of the Old Testament. I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart, again the heart, six times in this psalm he talks about the heart, the theological center. Flesh and heart may fail, but God, <coughs> God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Portion, heir, inheritance, all related concepts. In other words, uh, <clears throat> Romans 8, chapter 17 says that we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I have made the Lord God my refuge. He's the shelter in the storms of life, and also uh, in the sunshine. He is my good. My pr the Lord's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so I can tell about all that you do. He's made a personal decision that the God's presence is what really is important. Now, how do we know that this is all true? It's a nice poem. Well, we know that Jesus Christ was the suffering servant. He was born in a stable. And he died on the cross. He was taken to glory. 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul is writing to young Timothy. He says, The mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. <clears throat> Augustine reminds us that man is always seeking happiness. Man is not happy, he says, if we love and don't possess. Secondly, he says, man is not happy if we possess and we don't love. He says, man is not happy if he possesses and loves an unworthy object. He says, man is happy only loving and possessing God. Bow together in prayer. <clears throat> Gracious God,
We are gathered before you to hear your word. We pray that you would work in our hearts to help us believe your word and to live accordingly to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Will you thank Ed for me? As Restoration Church, we uh, continue to worship by responding in, in three ways every week through reflection, uh, giving, and communion. And as we respond this week, I want to bring up uh, verses 22 and 23 just really quick. One of the things I was noticing is, as Ed was teaching and, and speaking about this passage is that there's a, there's a big transition with the semicolon, yet I am always with you. Okay, so the author's telling us something. I am always with you, God. Okay. But then look, look at what shifts. This is the beauty of the gospel that Ed was just talking about with us. Then, so I, we get six words, yet I am always with you. Then, you, God, hold my right hand. You, God, guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you, God, will take me up in glory. Do you see, do you see what happens there? Well, what we often want to do is be the main character of this, but there's this beautiful uh, kind of set of scales, if you will, of weight scales where God does pretty much all of the work, all we do is recognize that you are always with me. And that's, that's the job that we have. And so in our response, as we reflect, where is it hardest in your life? Well, something that was interesting about the psalm is that it took us on a journey for the psalmist, for the author. Uh, the broken moments, the beautiful moments, the moments where God felt near and the moments where God felt really far. And, and what parts of your life is it the most challenging, the most dark, the most gray, the most foggy to know that God is with you. How do you go about remembering him in those moments? And then as we, as we take communion, there's two stations up here and, and one in the back. As we take the, the bread and dip it into the cup, we're remembering our just one little part. He is always with us. Our job is simply to remember, to stand up, to walk to the table, to recognize as we take the bread and the cup that he is with us always, everywhere marriages and our and our homes and our parenting and any relationship we have in the broken and the beautiful in all of life he is with us and your job this is this is the the beautiful freedom of Jesus and of the gospel that he is our living hope because our job is simply to remember he is living and to say Jesus you lead because I can't so as you take communion today remember that as Ed said this God as this Psalm 73 as Asaph said he is always with you all you really have to do is remember. As we take communion, we remember. He says, do this in remembrance of me. That never ends. There's a, there's a true and everlasting beauty in that. So as we continue to, to worship this morning, feel free to stand up and, and take communion as an individual or maybe with your family or your community at any point during the next song. Reflect on Psalm 73. And then if uh, you would like to, there's two boxes for giving in the back of the room. This is one of the, the forms of worship we have to recognize that God is God. Or there's instructions on how you can give online if that's how you'd like to worship for your finances. Let's continue to worship now, though, in our response. <laughs> 